Cloud Speaker Studios. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Menares, and you're listening to the We Podcast, where together we find inspiration, encouragement, and growth through stories and real talk. Here we navigate the messy human experience together. We raise our voices and speak our truth. In this space, we value the conversations that broaden our perspective and help us fully understand that we are connected, we are capable of growth, and that we are not alone. Are you ready? Let's get real. I have Black Sheep Bios here today, and I'm super excited for this interview. Black Sheep Bios is a deconstruction-related Instagram account that strives to challenge harmful religious constructs while encouraging and empowering people to find healing and enjoy spirituality without the confines of abusive doctrine. So up my alley and so excited to be able to dive in with you, Britt. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes. Well, I, uh, you know, I was surfing Instagram one day and kind of, I've been on my own deconstruction journey, I would say for probably the last 10 years and really heavily in the last Five, I would say when I found you on Instagram, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing <laughs> because deconstructing is hard. It's scary. There are so many things that come with it. And so, you know, to know there are other people out there that understand that totally get it. I think it's, it's just huge. Yeah, it is so hard. And I think the deconstruction community on Instagram, like you said, I didn't even know it was a thing until last year. And then it's kind of started this whole snowball effect. But, you know, in hindsight, now we follow all these accounts who focus on all the stuff and there's all these resources and it's just been so helpful for my healing. But if you had told me this like two years ago, I, I honestly thought I was like the only one. <laughs> You know, it's either you have the people who like, well, this doesn't serve me anymore. So they kind of walk away and like, that's that, but not actually going through the active process of, you know, let's identify that this is religious trauma. Let's identify that this actually caused some lifelong effects in you, you know? Yes, it's so true. I didn't know it was a thing. It is a relief almost to know you're not alone. So could you kind of walk us through what brought you to make the page? What's your background as far as what's brought you to now and what you're doing? I grew up in pretty strict, I don't know if I would say fun. I don't know. I don't think they would call themselves fundamentalist, but I'd say it was a pretty fundamentalist evangelical background. My dad was, is actually still in ministry, has his degree in theology, and he's actually a theology professor. So he would also preach at different churches kind of to fill in here and there, but his main role was to teach theology. So I guess you could say I was sort of a pastor's kid, but on top of that, a professor's kid. So I like to think that that adds just a whole nother juicy layer to unpack because you're not just talking about life at church, but you're talking about somebody who has dedicated their career and their life to really digging into the nitty gritty of dogma and doctrine and analyzing that and how that plays out in our family dynamic. So that's my background and grew up running around the church, running around the college and eventually went to that Christian college. And it was a wild experience. Really, really, honestly, really, really, really toxic. It was so harmful. You know, I always kind of doubted and questioned a lot of my faith. So I don't think it would shock anybody that I ended up deconstructing. I think, you know, my earliest memories of religious trauma go back as far as I can remember, you know, I mean, young, young, but really remembering certain things that happened in high school through youth group and stuff and how much that impacted me. Even then, so much of what we were expected to sit through, not sit well with me. So I've always sort of questioned the status quo 
people. And I do think a lot of people in the deconstruction space, maybe they start deconstructing that leave them to leave the faith or leave the church. I was kind of the opposite. I left the church because it just was like, I can't do this anymore. This does not serve me. This is toxic. I, I have to leave to be able to figure things out. I'm not going to figure it out in this space. So I left first and then later on kind of found out, like I said last year, what deconstruction is and ended up starting a page. And it, I had no idea it would grow as much as it has. I had no idea what I was saying would resonate with so many people or what other people said resonated so much with me. I mean, it's been profound for healing. So I just want to go back a, a little bit and for the people listening, you know, there might be some people listening, thinking, what the heck is deconstruction? Like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit, just explain what deconstruction is? So deconstruction is what we, I guess, have kind of coined, and I'm very hesitant to even put a straight definition on it, because I think for everybody, it's going to be unique, and it should be. I think that's part of what's so healing about it is that, you know, you're not switching out one dogma for another dogma, you're yeah. figuring out what it means. It's actually just the process of deconstructing indoctrinating beliefs that you've had. And it's not necessarily just evangelical Christianity. I have talked to people and have followers who are deconstructing from, you know, Mormonism, Catholicism, Buddhism, even actually, which is interesting. And just any kind of religious or spiritual thought process that has had adverse effects on people in their life, whether it's caused spiritual trauma or, or you know, there's religious abuse involved. There's a lot to unpack there with people who grew up in these instances, not just what we would typically define as a cult, although probably a lot of these could be, but just, yeah, just basically deconstructing from those types of institutions. And I think reason that, you know, I said earlier, at first, I thought it was just a matter of those who stayed on the straight and narrow and then those that just kind of veered away because it no longer served them and they stopped going to church. Well, why can't you be one or the other? You can, but what deconstruction does is allows you to sort of pick apart why am I the way that I am? For instance, if I have a lot of issues feeling inferior as a woman, I can't just, you know, say, well, that's not right. I shouldn't do that anymore. So I won't, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I, in the therapy, you would work with your therapist to say, well, where is that coming from? Why do you feel that way? Right. There's, right. this has got to be some sort of deep seated belief that's you know, you inherited somewhere. So that's where deconstruction comes in is enables you to sort of take a look at, okay, well, I have like a terrible fear of death. Why is that? Well, maybe that's because I was taught as a child about health or being a woman and things like that, being queer. Oh my gosh. Like there's just so much to unpack. So that's sort of what the deconstruction process is. Yeah. Some of the other buzzwords I think we'll be using throughout the talk today are religious trauma, spiritual abuse. I remember the first time I ever even heard that either those words, it was like the biggest aha of, oh my gosh, this is abuse. Like I never, the, the first time I ever heard this was one of my friends I grew up with. I grew up with in a Southern Baptist church. My dad was the pastor extreme. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And my friend sent me a podcast episode. It was on a true crime podcast and it was about the Bible camp show on Netflix. She said, this is our childhood. And I listened to the episode and the way that they were talking about it, about how abusive it was and how horrible the things that they were doing to these children were, I mean, prior to this, I always thought, yeah, that's pretty jacked up, but never had thought about it in the context of abuse until that point. I'm curious about this. And this is something that I've been thinking through and I'd love to talk to somebody else about is, do you think the reason that we're so hesitant to identify it or for it to be obvious to us that it's abuse is that, you know, obviously if it's what's your normal, then maybe it's harder to identify that. But I think a huge impact and I'd love to get your input on this is just so many of us grew up with this and we were taught these things even at a pre-verbal stage. Mm -hmm. So this was, you know, and that's what 
you know, this is really serious. And it, it saddens me deeply to think about this is teaching like young, 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 young children, again, pre-verbal even that this is what our family believes. You have to do this. Well, a child at that point is thinking about, well, these are the parents that are going to be providing me food, shelter, water, like I, to survive, must inherit also this thought process. There is no room for me to choose. Therefore, I have to adopt this. And man, that's so impactful because if you're that young and thinking, this is our normal, this is what we do, don't question it. You have to do this or really bad consequences happen. You just kind of grow up thinking, well, this is normal. And then, you know, here we are years and years later going, oh, this is incredibly bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is not normal, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember meeting people who, well, one of my best friends in high school was not religious whatsoever. And I remember being so fearful for her, so scared for the people who didn't believe the way that I did, because I was, I, I mean, I was scared they weren't going to be in heaven with me. And I, they were going to, you know, die in the fiery hell that I had heard about since I before I could speak. Yes. (laughs) So I do think it's, it's hard to label it as abuse because I think when we label it as abuse, there's a few things. It's maybe that we're blaming our parents for abusing us and we don't want to do that. That's a hard thing to speak out, right? That you were abusive towards me in this way. And I think also just not knowing or not understanding what the consequences of what we were taught, like how those played out into our lives. And the more that I have gotten awareness about how it's played out for me, the more I realize and understand that it was abuse. Yeah. I think one of, you know, if I had to have one major, major thing that, you know, someone asked me in one sentence, what do you wish people knew? It was that spirituality requires consent. And part of my deconstruction journey too was sort of an eye-opening moment was realizing that your spirituality is an inherent right. It's not a privilege in the same way that your sexuality is an inherent right and not a privilege. And neither of those things should harm others. And those things should not be conduits for harm to you. And when you think about that, you're like, wow, evangelical Christianity really missed the mark because I don't think that I ever consented to any of the things that happened to me spiritually. You know what I mean? And that is a, gosh, that's such a violation. That's such a violation of my human experience. That's really sad. Yeah. That consent piece is huge. I remember asking to get baptized when I was little, but it was completely out of fear. You know what I mean? Like, oh my God, I have to get baptized. (laughs) I'm like, I mean, it's, it's that fear base, even if, so I guess what I'm thinking is even if there was consent, like even if in my own mind, when I was five years old, I asked to get baptized and that was seen as consent. It was consent based out of being fearful. Yeah. But then again, we can talk about consent and I'm not going to pretend to understand the answer to this, but I think it's a nuanced topic that's worth talking about here is totally at what age can children consent? And right here, like, let's distinguish, we're not talking about sexuality anymore, but like spiritually, Yeah. at what age can children spiritually consent to something? And you're totally right. So much of it is fear-based. And even going back to what you were saying about worrying so much about your friend. I had the same situation. One of my very best friends since elementary school has always been an atheist. And I would spend nights just lying awake, terrified, you know, for her salvation and thinking, man, if I had, you know, Christians always liked to use the the analogy, if you had the cure for AIDS, like you would give it to everybody. (laughs) And I'm like, am I not giving the cure well enough? Like, why am I not, you know, why am I not communicating this? Why do you not believe what I need? I need you to believe this. I love you so much. And it's the weirdest thing. But for me personally, actually, it's not that weird, but I remember the moment a good friend of mine passed away and I thought there's no way that person's in hell. There's, Mm -hmm. it's just not possible. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't, I can't go there. And I, at that point I hadn't rejected the idea of hell, but I was already like, I can't even think about it because that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. And then I don't know if you remember when was it in 2018, 
there was that disaster where those Boy Scouts in Thailand got stuck in a cave. Do you remember that? Hmm. Um, Vaguely, maybe. Yeah, it was like four years ago. A group of Boy Scout, Thai Boy Scouts and a couple of their leaders got stuck in a cave somewhere. And I remember it was like a three or four day ordeal where they sent Thai Navy personnel in through the cave to try and rescue these boys out. And the whole world was watching and it was really like everyone was rooting for them and like, oh my gosh, I hope they get these boys out. And I remember seeing this video of one Thai Navy guy who they're going through swimming with full scuba gear on pitch black, dark, obviously with headlamps, but pitch black through maybe like a three foot diameter tube to try get to get into this cave. And to me, that was like, oh my gosh, I'm claustrophobic. And that sounds horrible. And there was something about the fact that somebody would volunteer to be in that space and go through that experience simply to save the life of somebody else. And here he is some you know, he's probably a Buddhist. I don't, you know, I don't assume, but like if he's Thai, that's probably the, I think that's the main religion there. And thinking like, I'm sorry, but that that's it. I don't believe in hell anymore. Like that was the moment when, and, and that guy passed away, the, the mm. Thai Navy guy. And, and I just remember thinking, what an amazing example of bravery and what an amazing example of sacrifice and selflessness. And And I was so inspired by that. And I thought, I don't believe in hell anymore because it's, I'm not, what good God is going to condemn that behavior? It doesn't, it doesn't add up. Right. I think there are aha moments for me all throughout my life. It's like a, almost like a building up, right? Like until you get to that place where you're like, okay, now I, I have the information I need to reject this fully or you know, to look, look into something else. <laughs> but I yeah. think even the, the hardest part for me was going out of it and saying, I am going to reject this. I am going to say, I want to look into other things. So I went in, I went through this period where I read a lot of books, like, I don't know, all kinds of spiritual books, all kinds of, you know, reincarnation and all the books about all the things and trying to figure out what resonates with me and what doesn't resonate with me, just taking that step in and of itself was scary. Terrifying. Yes. Do you, does, do you relate to that? <laughs> Absolutely. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh but no, yes, I'm, yeah. I do relate. <laughs> yeah. I think, I don't know that destruction ever finishes. I think for the rest of your life coming out of these types of backgrounds, you're always going to have moments where you go, oh, that's why I had this toxic belief about myself or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think it's probably going to be a continuous healing process, right? I think a lot of things I've processed and worked through, and it's been awesome. I think one of the things I still, even though, and this is a great segue, is even though I really don't believe in a physical hell anymore, or even I mean, anything still have that. I mean, this is trauma. I literally PTSD from everything is a demon or everything is spiritual warfare that just doesn't leave you. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to discourage anybody. I don't want, you know, anyone to sit here and think like, oh my gosh, this is here to stay. I don't think so. I think that's just where I'm at in my healing process is that I still have to work through. Not everything is out to get you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If you open up that book, or if you are interested in getting a tarot reading, that doesn't mean necessarily that you're going, you know, to invite something horrible into your life. Like, but there's that trauma there. So I think I totally resonate with what you're saying. And I think that's another part that's frustrating is that even though you can stop being involved in Christian community and the church and the harmful doctrine and the belief and maybe even having really strict, healthy boundaries with friends and family. You can take a lot of that out of your life. The impact of it still follows you in day to day. And the impact follows you into trying to look into those new spiritual spaces. And not everybody resonates with this per se. I do think that we are all spiritual. I think we're all meant to be spiritual. I think that it's an important part of who we are. I think evangelicalism squashes that in such a detrimental way, but I do think we're spiritual. And I think perhaps some people tend to be a little bit more drawn to spiritual things than others. 
I don't know why, but I know that I'm that kind of person. I have had wildly weird spiritual experiences once I started deconstructing. I mean, a whole world of things started happening and not bad, like gifts and weird things. And, but I haven't been able to fully like lean into the, those things and enjoy them because always in the back of my mind is like, be careful, be careful, be careful. You know, mm-hmm. so even when you're trying to find what your spirituality is, it's, it's a intimidating process. It's a scary territory. It's kind of like a no man's land where you're like, I hope this is okay. <laughs> you know? Right. It reminds me of a post that you did on your Instagram recently that, oh, it just so resonated with me. And it, can I read it real quick? Is that okay? Yeah. It says religious trauma is unique in that our tendency to feel relentless, inescapable guilt is woven into the framework of our neural pathways. It need not require a trigger to surface, but rather it is always present even during the menial day-to-day tasks. I read that. I was like, preach, (laughs) preach in a different way, but the guilt and I, I'm a therapist and also, and I, I work with people who are deconstructing and the guilt, the guilt is let's speak about that. I want to hear your thoughts about that. That's exactly where that post stemmed from was just guilt. And to be honest, I started going to therapy. I've been in and out throughout my life, but I started going to therapy February of 2021. I was coming off a year postpartum and I had such intense postpartum anxiety and I was diagnosed with postpartum OCD, which I actually didn't even know was a thing until I got to experience it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, people talk about baby blues and they talk about postpartum depression. I had never heard about postpartum psychosis or anxiety or even that postpartum OCD was a thing. So I was in such constant distress. I mean, it was so bad that I, I just told my husband, I was like, I have to go get help. Like I cannot enjoy my life at all. I am in constant distress. My brain is literally flooded with intrusive thoughts 24 seven. I hate my life and I'm so miserable. I need to get help. So I went to a therapist and this was like right at the start of my deconstruction too. So I think it actually started with that. I also had some birth trauma, not from this, you know, this one a year ago, but from an earlier pregnancy. And I thought initially that that birth trauma that wasn't quite quite dealt with was kind of carrying over into my postpartum experience with my second daughter. And so that's why I went and I was diagnosed with OCD. And then we start talking about the birth stuff. And, and honestly, we actually got through the birth trauma stuff pretty quickly. We did EMDR, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. And then it quickly led into religious trauma. And that was, that was like what we spent the majority of our time and sessions on was just talking about my childhood and, and all of the religious trauma. And I didn't even realize that I had developed OCD and I know you're a therapist, so you understand what that means. But for Mm -hmm. a lot of people, you know, maybe you would think that OCD is just, you're a clean freak and you just want things really clean, but And maybe that manifests for some people. For me personally, it would manifest in intrusive thoughts. So just like constant, constant inundation of, and it's essentially a survival tactic that your brain is trying to deal with. Well, if we think about the worst possible thing that can happen before it happens, we'll be a little bit prepared. So your nervous system's always like on guard, you know, Mm -hmm. and And to be honest, Sarah, that didn't start with birth. That started with religion. 100%. It was this constant fear and constant guilt and how interwoven those two concepts are. So to go back to your question about the guilt, exactly. I mean, you are made to feel constant guilt because you fear not being good enough, not good enough to your own capabilities, not good enough for your parents or your friends or your pastors and church leaders, and most importantly for God. And so you every, and that's what that post kind of came from was this idea. I think it was last week that I was just sitting at my office at work and, you know, put in a full days of work. And at the end of the day thinking, why does it, why am I walking away feeling like 
oh, maybe I wasn't productive enough or maybe I didn't do this enough. And I do the same thing as a mom, like, well, did I do this quite as good as I could have? Or should I have done more? Or am I worthless? You know, POS. And, and you're thinking all these things and it's sort of, and I can notice it's sort of ramping up when those intrusive thoughts coming in about, oh, you're bad, you're worthless, blah, 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 you know? And I realized, man, that's my religious trauma peeking its ugly head. It's just that constant fear and guilt and shame. And it's just relentless. And when you live that way, Again, I think kind of adopting that idea and being used to feeling that in your environment as a child and then growing up with that for years and years and years. I mean, of course, 34 years later, I'm sitting here and I can't do a single task without feeling a little bit of, did you do that perfectly? Mm-hmm. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even laying down and t- taking a nap without feeling guilty is you know, like for, for me, it's, it's been rest, feeling guilty for, for rest, for taking t- downtime, for not being productive. Right. I totally relate to what you're saying. Yeah. Do you think, yeah, I mean, I just, I just think like even mom guilt is kind of a normal thing. I think mom, moms feel that a lot. Maybe mm-hmm. any parent does to an extent, I'm sure. But you know, we hear our culture talk a little bit more openly and freely about mom guilt and how, and I'm so glad because it's a really hard thing to deal with. It's yes. a really hard thing to come to grips with once you become a parent. And I think that coming from, you know, strict religious backgrounds does not help that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> at all. At mm-hmm. all. No, I remember when my daughter was little and I'd be like, I need a break. And I would openly say like, I need a break. And getting the message back to me, why, why would you need a break from your child? Like really feeling like you're, you're a bad parent if you don't want to be with your kid 24 seven. But again, that role of mother, right? Like in the, in the religious world, you're supposed to love being a mom, be with your kids all the time, do everything perfectly and never complain. <laughs> Always have a smile on your face. Yeah. And, and I mean, I would say a majority of those church spaces that I saw and was kind of actively a part of, it wasn't just that you, you know, if you're a woman, you should be a mom, but it was, you definitely shouldn't be a working mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you shouldn't have a career. Like, when I was in Christian college, we would have to do chapels three times a week, I think. And sometimes we would do breakout chapels where the men and women would get split up. And who knows what the men talked about. But women's chapels were always about two things, modesty and homemaking. And that's it. And, and that's not even a joke. Like these women are actually there paying you know, tuition to get actual degrees. <laughs> and, and half of them are just there because they're hoping to meet their husband there. Mm -hmm. And they're never going to use their degree because they're just going to be homemakers. Now, if that's what shakes out in your life and you love it, awesome. Like, go get it. I don't care. Great. Great. But to expect somebody to do that based on their gender, it's insane. Like, that's one of those things that we accept it as normal. That's so not normal. Mm -hmm. So all that to say you know, when you get that response from friends and family and other people, maybe who are still part of those religious systems that are like, well, you're a mom, like you should be enjoying your family 24 seven. Like you should love to give your husband sex all the time. And you should love to, you know, make everybody dinner and clean the house and everything. And you should look perfect too. All of that stuff. It's not at all what reality is. Mm-hmm. So when you're a working mom, I'm a working mom. I have a full-time job. Anytime somebody from that sphere hears about a struggle, like, oh, I'm so tired or whatever. It's like, they don't even know what to do with me. It's like, well, you sh- I shouldn't be working. <laughs> you're like, well, I kind of have to. So yeah. it's just one of those things where there's such a cognitive dissonance, you know, with gender roles and all that stuff and how that impacts moms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always seeking outside of yourself for your worth and your value and whether you're good or bad or yes. I think that was the biggest thing for me in deconstruction is learning how to get back to myself. Like you can trust your own instincts. You can trust your own gut. You can trust your own voice. Your, your own voice is important because I feel that's 
that was all stripped away from me. Um, my intuition, my ability to know that I could trust myself. And so going back to the mom thing, I think when that's not there, then it becomes so performance-based and being a mom is the perfect place to, you know, up your performance. (laughs) (laughs) You are so right. And I want to ask you too, you said you felt that was all stripped away. Do you feel like it was stripped or do you feel like it was never handed to you in the first place? I feel like I had it when I was younger. I do. I remember, I remember my intuition and I remember it being really strong. And I, I remember many times, very young learning. Well, you can't trust yourself. Like you can't trust that. Do you even know? Maybe that's like you said, maybe that's the enemy. Maybe that's, yeah, it's, it definitely wasn't valued and it was definitely belittled. And I think there's that element of control though, right? Like you have to take a, take that away in order to have control over somebody and in really fundamental disenvironments, I think that's the goal is to have control. And so you can't have intuition if I want to have control over you. Yeah. Which is such a violation. Like, and that's one of those things that to us seemed normal, but at the end of the day, that that's so detrimental. I remember, I know this is like a quote that a lot of people have heard. So it's probably not like new, but I, we're not humans having a spiritual experience, but we're spirits having a human experience. And that I love that because to me, that has been one of the quotes that has helped me. I'll tell my, remind myself of that when I'm really struggling with self-worth and I'm really struggling with, you know, getting in touch with my intuition and, and having confidence and saying, no, like, don't be fearful. You're on the right path. You know what you're doing. Trust your intuition through these experiences that you're having is to remind myself again, that, that I am spiritual. And I don't know exactly what that means. I am spirit. And that's something that I like to think about and talk about. And I don't know where it's going to go, honestly. And it opens up a whole world of possibilities, but all that to say, yeah, I mean, you, you, the intuition thing is so spot on because it is 100%, not only not encouraged, but absolutely discouraged, you know, like, what intuition? You don't need intuition. I think one of the most harmful concepts in Christianity, at least maybe that's been taken out of context, I kind of tend to believe was the idea of denying yourself or die to yourself. When I was in youth group, I went in, I, re- I will never forget my first night in youth group. I was so excited. I was starting junior high. I was seventh grade and just like ready to serve the Lord. And I went into youth group and that first night, my youth pastor was pretty intense. And he was like, you know, over the next, cause you have four years of high school, two years of junior high. So over the next six years, you guys are going to learn how to die to yourself and deny yourself. And you're going to want to, you know, right now you're selfish, but by the end of your time, when you graduate my youth group you're gonna like you no one will like shotgun in the car nobody's gonna get the best seat they're all gonna want you're all gonna want to strive to serve others almost to your own detriment like it was so much about it was almost like a boot camp like how can I make you just die to yourself a little bit more god do you know how damaging that is for a 13 year old prepubescent girl to hear be kidding me? Right. <laughs> like, no wonder we have identity issues now, you know? And that's normal in that sphere. It's normal to accept. And to be fair, like, absolutely. Like, selflessness is beautiful. Like, what I talked about with the cave diver. Like, that's amazing. Like, that is a good example of denying yourself, denying your creature comforts because you consented to and chose to help another human. I would venture to say that's probably more what Jesus meant when he said that, you know, but at the end of the day, like the way it's taken out of context is what you're saying. It's a way to control. Well, if you deny yourself, then I can tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. There is no you. 
you have identity. It doesn't matter. It's about Jesus. And that is really, really harmful. I agree. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. These days, I don't have a lot of time to read. It seems like when I sit down long enough to relax and read a book, I usually just fall asleep. So (laughs) I love that I can consume new information and read new things while I am multitasking and I'm out on the go or doing laundry. Driving is a huge one. I love how it keeps me occupied because I am a big believer in growth and learning and it's just a wonderful way to be able to do that and fit into the real life, the busyness that life can sometimes be without having to sit down and read. I have consumed so many Audible books that just have added so much to my life and With this episode, one of the books that I did listen to on Audible back when I really first started my deconstruction journey is the book called You Are Your Own by Jamie Lee Finch. And this book, the thing, I really love it when the books are actually read by the authors. And this book is read by the author, which is super fun. Other books that were pivotal for me in my growth and healing journey were all the books by Brene Brown, and I would recommend every single one of them. I also love that Brene Brown reads her own books as well. So you can go over to Audible, you get a free 30 days, and then after that it's only $14.95 a month, which is less than a book would cost if you were to actually buy the physical book. There's no contract and you can cancel at any time, which is absolutely fabulous. There's so much amazing content to choose from. They have podcasts, audiobooks, uh, guided wellness programs. They also have a lot of their own Audible originals. So there's no excuse to not fit learning and growing into your life when you can be doing it while you're cleaning your house for example. So head on over and check it out and get signed up. Visit audibletrial.com slash wepodcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash wepodcast for your first free 30 days. And let me know how it goes. I can't wait to hear all about what your favorite listening experiences are once you get signed up with Audible. All right, now let's get back to the conversation. So there's two th- two directions I want to go. The <laughs> I'm trying to decide. I maybe this is the first one is it, it reminds me what you're talking about now. Also, I know something that you like to talk about and you're passionate about is is purity culture. And I feel like this ties together with denying yourself because again, the sexuality piece, right? Like we are born sexual human beings and to have sexual impulses or to enjoy anything sexual is a bad, bad thing, right? If you're not married. And so that's another way you have to deny yourself, die to yourself and you're it's, it's bad, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The two tie in very much is the idea of deny to your, deny yourself. And in the same way that your, your spirituality isn't really your own in these spaces, your sexuality is your own either. And that like, Somebody who didn't grow up in religion might hear that. Oh, what are they talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's true. Like what we are taught to believe is, you know, your body is not your own. Your body is a temple. So already that alone really messes up your own connection to your own body. It messes up, like it creates incredible body dysmorphia. It creates such, such a vast... I don't know, separation from 
how much I think we should be in our body. And, you know, I don't want to get off on a, on a tangent, but kind of going along those lines, like, you know, what you said, part of what's been really healing is kind of leaning into like redefining and finding your intuition again and finding what's good for you. Part of probably the best other than therapy, which is really important if you have the privilege to be able to access that. I think the most the most impactful tool I've had for deconstruction is meditation. And part of that was just sitting with myself, learning how to ground myself, learning how to calm my own nervous system, learning how to really get into my body and an experience even, and I won't get too much into it, but even kind of do a little bit of energy work and how that's a gift that I have. Mm-hmm. And that ties into being really grounded in the body. So going back to what we're talking about, absolutely, your sexuality isn't your own. Your body isn't your own. You don't have bodily autonomy. And that that manifests in so many problems for so many of us. I mean, eating disorders and, and things like that, all kinds of things. So I think purity culture is one of those things that really, really emphasized that growing up was just, you know, your body doesn't belong to you. And not just talking about staying pure before marriage, but the actual like 90s, early 2000s trendy movement of purity culture and true love waits. And I kissed dating goodbye. Like as a high schooler when that happened, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I was, I had a purity ring and all of it. And to a little bit of a creepy extent, not only does your body not belong to you, but you are quite literally told that it's going to belong to another man, like a a husband. And until he comes around, your dad is the gatekeeper. And Mm. it's like, gross. It's creepy, weird. And not, I mean, and I, I don't fault my own father. Like, did he buy me a purity ring? Yes. Did he get really mad when he found out I wasn't a virgin? Yes. He wasn't weird of it. But when you look back at the concept of it, you're like, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't right. That did not set me up for, you know, a healthy self-image with my body. It didn't it did not set me up for healthy sexuality at right. all. You know, so let's talk about the flip side of that. So what do you think now? Like you have daughters. I have a daughter and a son. Obviously, we're probably both doing things much differently than <laughs> the way that we were raised, (laughs) but I would love to hear like as a mom who has, you know, is going through deconstruction, how do you handle that with your children now? I mean, what's the difference? I want to give people an idea of how can you do it differently? I love that question. I have one daughter and she, so She's only three and it's really fun because she's starting to kind of come alive and aware of the world and remembering things and learning and kind of exploring things about herself and the world around her. And, and so right now it's a very teachable time for her. So we're sort of kind of winging it like every parent, but we're really trying to be really thorough in how we teach her about herself and her body and that in how that relates to other people. And I think right now it's not just deconstructing people, but I think just society as a whole has gotten so much better at attempting to teach children and teach the youth what healthy sexuality can or can't look like. And that could be everything from redefining how we look at gender identity and we look at queer people and all these different things that people can be and and things that they can fit in or not fit in. Taking that into account is really important to me that she understands that there is a spectrum of different kinds of people. There's different kinds of families. There's different kinds of relationships and understanding that consent is very, very important. And, you know, if you're doing something that doesn't cause harm to yourself or another person, then you shouldn't feel bad about that. And you shouldn't feel shameful about that. So it's fun to be in a point where I'm teaching a toddler kind of obviously like bare bones, like limited info, you know, you're just kind of teaching them a little bit about like, you know, how things work and, and how to have a healthy view of themselves. And that's hard because on the inside, you're still thinking about it yourself. I mean, I can tell her, you know, you're so and you're perfect the way that you are. And yet internally, I'm like, Ooh, I totally believe that about myself. Like I know that I should, and I'm going to teach her to, 
But this is very much a situation of breaking generational cycles, like very much. (laughs) And that is, man, my, and that's something that my hat is off to you people in the deconstruction community, like my followers and stuff who I have seen. It makes me, I get goosebumps and teary eyed and I'm just so freaking proud of everybody who is breaking some intense cycles right now, like crazy. And I'm one of them and it's, man, it is hard work. It is so hard. There's no guidebook. Nobody's telling you what to do. You just have to use what little semblance of intuition you've been able to reconstruct for yourself and just go for it. But it's empowering and it's exciting. And it's, it's so exciting to think that, man, she might have a really good puberty and high school experience and college experience. And she's going to be so set up before you know, having a long-term relationship if that's what she wants. And I get excited about like, maybe you're not going to have this trauma that I had. And maybe you're going to have a really healthy sexual identity. And I really hope so, you know? Yeah. It's amazing that the breaking the generational cycles is so powerful. So, so amazing that we get to do that. I, and I love seeing like the difference I'm like our generation. Cause I think we're from maybe the same ish generation. Oh, I, yeah. I think so. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, well, if you were in high school during the purity thing, so was I. So around there. Yep. Yeah. But I see changes in our, with our generation, like I'm seeing major, major changes. And it makes me so excited because now we're teaching our children and to think about, you know, the way my son is going to be when he gets older makes me so excited to, to be able to challenge the old ways of being and challenge the old power over and all of the just toxic, toxic ways of being to ourselves and being to each other. Yeah. I would say the hardest thing for me is as I'm kind of redefining what my spirituality looks like, I will be candid. You know, I still, I still identify as Christian-ish, like a little bit, like very, very bare bones. Mm-hmm. And that's that's ever evolving. I don't know where that's going to end up. But for me right now, I do still very much have an anger in Jesus. And that and that might be triggering to some people. And, and that's okay. Like I am so okay with whatever you want to believe. I really am. And I do not have a view of Jesus and what he taught that excludes other people. I just don't think it does. When I was finally able to kind of get back into the Bible and just look at gospels, I was like, look, I don't really care about the Old Testament. I think there's a lot of problematic things in there that are extremely contradictory and probably taken out of context. I don't think that the Bible is inerrant at all. And once I was able to kind of say, okay, maybe this isn't inerrant. Maybe like there's a lot left to interpretation. There's a lot of gray area and maybe it's supposed to be that way because in reality, like if there, if there's an all powerful omniscient creator, God who wanted us to know exactly the right thing, there wouldn't be such a, such a discourse, such a disagreement over so many things in scripture. So just kind of from my research and my experience and what I feel right now, I don't think that it's inerrant. I think there's a lot of things that are just only applicable to the culture at the time. We're getting off track, but basically what I'm trying to say is that I still do have a relationship with Jesus and, and I'm kind of trying to figure out what that looks like. So as I'm raising a child who I want her to be, I want her to be encouraged to be a spiritual person. I want her to know about spiritual things. And I want to be candid and honest about what I believe. I also really, really, really need to make sure that she knows you don't have to believe what I believe. You are your own person. You can, this is what mom and dad think. We're not sure about this, whatever you figure it out. You have the freedom and the autonomy to choose what you believe. And it is a violation of your human experience for us to not respect that. Absolutely. So I'm kind of struggling too with like, well, how much do I, so we do pray together almost every night, but every time before we pray, I always ask her, I say, do you mind if I pray? Do you want me to pray? And sometimes she'll say no. And then I don't, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes she says yes. So I do. So that's kind of like the bare minimum of where we're at, but that's a hard aspect too, is like, as you're breaking these cycles and you're trying to say like, well, maybe I still do want to kind of teach them a little bit about this, but I want to do so in like a very 
healthy way, what does that look like? You know? Yes. So I'm glad you're talking about this because it actually, that that was the other path I wanted to go down earlier when I wasn't sure which to take. Because sometimes when I have these conversations with people, I feel like it feels like I'm bashing Christianity or I'm bashing people who, you know, believe in Jesus or God, whatever. Um, for me, and I no longer believe Jesus is a savior. I think that he's probably one of the masters is my belief, but, but I don't think if somebody else is finds that that is what resonates with them and that that's in alignment with them, then I think that's okay too. My question is, are there healthy Christians out there? Do you know what I mean? And how do you be a healthy Christian? And I think that's something I struggle with because I mean, one of my best friends is, is Christian and I love her so much. And she's, she's a very accepting, loving, I can completely be myself with her. I can tell her that I believe in reincarnation or whatever, and she doesn't judge me. So I feel like that's a healthy place to be. And so I don't want people to think that I'm like, all Christians are bad or, you know, I think I'm still trying to figure out though, what is healthy in, in my mind or for me when it comes to Christianity? And is that even possible? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I'm serious. And here's where like our, our trauma and spite is going to like try to speak out. (laughs) I think that there can be a healthy Christian. Like, I don't know. I feel like I kind of am a Christian. Like I said, I'm Christian ish. I think Mm -hmm. I have roots in it. I think there's things about Jesus. I have had, let me put it this way. I've had a profound experience. (laughs) Make me sound crazy. Bear with me. I have had a, a profound spiritual experience with Jesus. Okay. I didn't like actually see him, but like, it was just like in prayer, meditation and vision. And it was during an intense moment in my life. I cannot walk away from that and say that wasn't real. I am somebody like I was talking earlier and I won't get off on a sidetrack because this could be a whole thing, but I am deeply intuitive. I am an intense dreamer too. And I do something called dream work. That is, I can be lucid in my dreams and I, I can do a lot of really, really interesting things with my dreams. It's just one of my gifts. Um, All that to say, I know when things I experience are profound and real and when it's just my subconscious processing things. So this experience was very profound and spiritual and real to me. So because of that, partially because of that, it still resonates. So for me, I'm able to still, and when I went back into scripture and looked at just the red letter text, the gospel, and just was like, okay, well, if you're going to kind of deny everything else and say everything's inerrant, if you still want to be a Christian, you probably have to agree with what the Bible, like what Christ said in the scripture, because that's all we have, right? So I told myself, like, if there's something in here that he says that I'm like, oh, yeah, that's really bad. I can't get on board with that. Then I'm going to have, like, we're going to have to have a serious conversation inside here and think, like, are we an atheist now? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was open to that. I was like, this might not be it, right? Totally open to it. I got to a place, to be fair, it took me years until I could crack my Bible open. Like, years until I was ready and it's still like minimal and it's still just the gospels and it's focused on the red letter. I don't really care what the disciples said. I don't care what Paul said. I think Paul is like a huge reason why Christianity got so messed up, honestly. But when I looked at red letter texts, like truth be told, there's nothing that I've read so far that I can't get on board with as a spiritual leader. You know what I mean? Like what you said as one of the masters, whether you believe he's God or not, like as one of the masters, like he was really insightful. Mm-hmm. He was really spiritually insightful. So there's that. And maybe I'm jaded and have a lot of anger and angst towards the American church, but I don't think there is a healthy church. I don't know. I just don't think there is. And I hate when people say, well, like not every church is that way. And it's like, I'm sorry, Carol, but I've been to like 70 churches and they all were that way. And like, there, there's actually like, I got so tired of people saying that one time I made a not all churches bingo card on my Instagram account. 
And we all laughed at it because it was like, oh yeah, all churches do that. So yeah, honestly, all churches are a lot alike. They Mm -hmm. really are. So I guess where I like, and I'm still, I love that you asked this question because I don't know, and I'd love to get your opinion on it too, is I don't know that there can be a healthy church scenario, at least in the way that we're familiar with it. Perhaps when, like if you, me, and a couple other people go out for like a glass of wine and and like, is this right here, church? Mm -hmm. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Like this to me seems healthy because we're chewing on stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But to go through like methodical, traditional, like we do this because of this and we listen to somebody who tells us to believe this and that changes how we live our whole lives and and everything fits inside a little box. And that to me, like, I don't see how that's anything other than a cult, Mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. I don't know that organized religion as we know it can be healthy because how can you have full... How can you know when you're sharing something spiritual with somebody, like if I'm a spirit being and I'm sharing this conversation with you, another spirit being, how do I know, like, if I'm telling you, you need to believe this, this is what the God says, or the spirit says, how do I know that you consent to that? Is that Mm -hmm. a violation of what, what feels right in your intuition? I don't know. So is there really ever a healthy environment in which a pastor or a leader can get in front of a lot of people. And that, I guess that begs the question, like, what does a healthy spiritual leader look like? Yeah. I feel like we, we need a whole nother episode for this. No, it's true though, but here's the thing. And then I'll ask you my questions. I feel like the biggest part of my deconstruction is going from, I have this set of rules that I follow to a T and this is the way, right? This is the path. This is the only way of being to being okay with not knowing, being okay with chewing on things with people, not having the answers, not having rules or a path. (laughs) I think that's the biggest thing, right? Like, and that's the hardest thing to go from a set of rules and expectations to, to nothing like, well, now what do I do? I don't, you know, it's like you're floating out there and, and how, how do you be, you know, just be, and I think it's okay to not know. I think it's a good thing to not know, to not have all the answers to, to just keep learning and deciding what resonates and what doesn't. Absolutely. That's really well said. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So I would love to know what do you feel has been the most vital to your growth? I think I I already mentioned the most vital tool has been meditation. And, and like what you said about the intuition, I think the most vital thing is just learning that it is not unsafe to question. It is not unsafe to look within yourself and to use what actual spiritual gifts I think we have as, as people to just think like, you know, this feels right. This doesn't feel right. My intuition is telling me this and to really trust that. And meditation is absolutely vital. I think it's so important and it's so necessary and it's so beneficial. So I think that's definitely been the biggest tool in, in learning how to navigate all this. Mm. What would you say just really quickly? To people who believe meditation is a bad, will invite in, you know, spirits or. Well, I think it's not just something that's good for, I mean, I think it's good for anybody, even people who are still very deeply involved in religious systems. I think it's a common misnomer that meditation is emptying your mind. And that's actually not what you're doing when you're meditating. What you're doing is just observing. So it's more of an unbiased, and, and there are guided meditations you can go through that'll tell you, you know, anytime your meditation practice is like a muscle. It's, and believe me when I say that is so true. You miss a week and you're just like, your brain's going to be like, la, 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 la. like, what am I going to make for dinner? Did I pick up that? Did I do that? Do, does the dog need more dog food? Like, and you're just <laughs> you're like, no, um, that happens. And as you, as you practice more and more, your daily practice is what's going to get to a point where you can really begin to enjoy the quietness, but it's not an emptying. It's not an emptying of yourself so that something comes into you. Maybe some people practice that way. And that's, I don't think that's meditation. I think that's another thing for another Mm -hmm. day, 
But I think real meditation is just the silent observation. It's a way to allow your nervous system to kind of calm down. And when you're having thoughts, you can say, observe, observe, thinking, thinking. And you're kind of just, I've heard the analogy that you're just sort of looking at your thoughts as a freight train passing by. And you're saying, hmm, shame (laughs) or guilt or joy. Like you're just sort of kind of, identifying the things that are coming up within you. And it's a really passive way to to look inward and listen to what your brain and your body are trying to tell you. So I don't think that's, even for someone who has that type of PTSD about demons and, and letting things come in, the goal is not to be empty. The goal is actually to be very much within and very full within yourself. Mm-hmm. Love that. Thank you. Thanks for explaining that. Walking away from this podcast, what do you want to make sure that people know? I think my biggest heart for people right now is two things. The first is that you are not in danger or unsafe for questioning and doubting your faith. It is okay. You are safe. Like you are, you don't need to feel shame and guilt. And it really, any religious belief that requires that you do is probably harmful. And I encourage you to walk away from that um, or reevaluate it. And then the second thing is just pertaining to people who, like me, do still resonate with Jesus and the identity of who he was and is and, and still do have roots and anchors in Christianity, but think like, is there a place for me in this still? First of all, if you don't, love it for you. Love that for you. No problem. <laughs> but mm-hmm. if you do, like me, and you're wondering, like, am I allowed to do this? like in this very, I guess, like unconventional way. Yes, you are a spirit being and your spirituality requires consent. And if you don't consent to something, you don't have to do it. You don't have to partake in it. If it causes harm and it doesn't sit well with you, you don't have to do it. And that does not separate you from Jesus. Absolutely not. And yeah, at the end of the day, you know, trust, trust your intuition and trust yourself. And I know that's hard to do, but it is worth it. Yeah. I love that. It reminds me, I was thinking we need a rebrand Christianity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Christianity we rebranding. And they call the real thing the other. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having this conversation with me. Also, where can people find you? Let them know you're mainly on Instagram. Yeah. It's just at black sheep bios. Awesome. Yes. So follow black sheep bios. You can see all the goodness that is being put out on that page. Again, knowing you're not alone, knowing that other people are experiencing or have gone through similar things is so vital, I think, to the healing process and to getting back to yourself and figuring out what you believe, not what's been put on you to believe. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the We Podcast. I'm grateful for you showing up with us in this space. If you'd like to connect, please look for links to our social media and ways to get in touch in the show notes. This show is produced by Loudspeaker Public Media. You should also know that Loudspeaker is completely listener supported and that you can become a member at loudspeaker.org. You can find more of the We Podcast as well as so much more awesome programming on the network. And again, that's at loudspeaker.org. Also, giving credit to my talented daughter for creating my show music. If you heard something that resonated with you and you know it would be helpful for others, please don't forget to share with your friends. You can also read more of our blog focused on all things personal growth at theweespot.com. Remember, your story makes you who you are. Speak your truth, show up for the hard conversations, choose growth, and always know that you are not on this journey alone. See you next time.
This has been a listener-supported production of Loudspeaker Studios. For more on this and other programs, visit loudspeaker.org. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. These days, I don't have a lot of time to read. It seems like when I sit down long enough to relax and read a book, I usually just fall asleep. So (laughs) I love that I can consume new information and read new things while I am multitasking and I'm out on the go or doing laundry. Driving is a huge one. I love how it keeps me occupied because I am a big believer in growth and learning and it's just a wonderful way to be able to do that and fit into the real life, the busyness that life can sometimes be without having to sit down and read. I have consumed so many Audible books that just have added so much to my life and With this episode, one of the books that I did listen to on Audible back when I really first started my deconstruction journey is the book called You Are Your Own by Jamie Lee Finch. And this book, the thing, I really love it when the books are actually read by the authors. And this book is read by the author, which is super fun. Other books that were pivotal for me in my growth and healing journey were all the books by Brene Brown, and I would recommend every single one of them. I also love that Brene Brown reads her own books as well. So you can go over to Audible, you get a free 30 days, and then after that it's only $14.95 a month, which is less than a book would cost if you were to actually buy the physical book. There's no contract and you can cancel at any time, which is absolutely fabulous. There's so much amazing content to choose from. They have podcasts, audiobooks, uh, guided wellness programs. They also have a lot of their own Audible originals. So there's no excuse to not fit learning and growing into your life when you can be doing it while you're cleaning your house for example. So head on over and check it out and get signed up. Visit audibletrial.com slash wepodcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash wepodcast for your first free 30 days and let me know how it goes. I can't wait to hear all about what your favorite listening experiences are once you get signed up with Audible. All right, now let's get back to the conversation.